In this episode, we're going to look at some concrete examples of where the knowledge and discipline of textual criticism is important to help us navigate what text we are actually going to translate. Often, these are little details that make simple verses turn into more difficult challenges than one might imagine. We'll focus on the book of 1 Samuel and see how a simple narrative on the surface can turn out to be a complex balancing act underneath. I'm Andrew Case, and this is Working for the Word. Here we go. So as you may know from past episodes, I'm currently working with a group called the Chatino on an Old Testament project. And right now we just finished the book of 1 Samuel. And what I want to do today is look at a few things that may be unexpected to you that would be involved in the checking or translation of 1 Samuel. So to start out, you would think, 1 Samuel, okay, this is narrative, basic, it's going to be easy, super smooth, and not a lot of problems to deal with. Well, it's going to be easier than poetry, but it's actually surprisingly more complex than you might imagine. So one of these factors is the text itself. It is not a clear-cut story. So the transmission of the text of 1 Samuel is not as clean and beautiful as we would hope. So there are issues with the Hebrew that are obscure, and then there are textual variants that also complicate the story. You might be really surprised when you get to a verse like 1 Samuel 10.1. It just says, Then Samuel took a flask of oil, this is the ESV, and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. So you think, okay, that's easy. Let's go ahead and translate that. But then you would look at the NIV and see this. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? Stop. That's it. So the ESV is actually twice as long as the NIV because it adds... And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies, and this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. So that's a big difference. Now, why is this happening? Because the Septuagint has the longer version. So the ESV stands within the tradition of the NRSV. And so the NRSV has gone with the Septuagint's longer reading. Now, some examples of Bibles that did not go with the longer version from the Septuagint are the NLT, the King James, and the NASB, along with quite a few others. So, the translators I'm working with obviously see these major differences between their Spanish translations, which also have these differences, and they're trying to figure out, okay, what on earth is going on here? They have to decide which reading are we going to translate. And so this obviously leads me to another one of my special soapboxes, 
which is the absolute importance of teaching textual criticism not only to consultants, but to the actual translators who are doing this work. So if you'll indulge me for a moment, let me share a little bit along these lines. I am appalled and astonished frequently by people ignoring these issues when it comes to Bible translation. So in the the world of Bible translation, you might be surprised, but there are many people who have not studied this discipline, who are both consultants and who are also translators. And it's mainly the translators who are not given this kind of training. And the question is, why haven't they been given this kind of training in the first place? Well, number one, people are all in a rush about Bible translation. People want to get the Bible into people's hands as fast as they can, right? Rightly so. That's a good motivation. It's not sinful. But that leads to people asking themselves over and over, how can we make this process streamlined, shorter, easier? How many corners can we cut and still get away with it and still get a decent translation, basically? And this is a very hard tension to navigate. I acknowledge that. So I'm more on the side of let's do as much as we can to really prepare translators as far as they can go. And if we have to make some compromises on the side of urgency, then so be it. Then there would be this whole other camp of people who say, well, okay, the problem is The education level of so many of these people who are doing translation in these minority languages is not quite up to the level required for them to learn these more complex disciplines and sciences like textual criticism or Greek and Hebrew for that matter. And so we just won't deal with it. And my answer to that is we simply have to persevere. We have to be innovative in our way of teaching. We have to meet them where they're at. And we have to slowly and patiently give them the knowledge and preparation that they need, whether that takes longer than most people or whatever. But we have to meet them with the kind of education that's going to be beneficial to them. We can't assume that the way that we received this education is going to work for them. We can't reduplicate that mechanically and then expect them to have the same kind of results as we had. Now, I'm guilty of this because usually the tendency is to teach the way you were taught, the way it worked for you, right? So, I'm guilty of this in the first years that I was in Equatorial Guinea. I tried to teach Hebrew to translators the way that I was taught Hebrew, and it absolutely did not work. And that's not because the people are dumber than I am, they have less mental capacity than I do. They actually have a stronger ability to learn languages than I do but you just have to meet them where they're at, teach them the way they learn languages, which is not through the grammar textbook approach. Now, if we take this back to textual criticism, this is so essential because translators have to be able to navigate thousands and thousands of text-critical issues, and they shouldn't have to be solely dependent on a consultant from another country. Now, other consultants would respond to me by saying, no, it's not needed because the simple solution and the standard practice is to pick the standard translation that everybody already uses in that people group in the language of wider communication, which in my case here is Spanish, right? So the most popular translation here is still the Reina Valera 1960. And so they would say, okay, 
what did, did the Reina Valera 1960 do with this textual variant? All they have to do is follow that. Because when people compare it to the most popular translation, they compare this new translation into Chatino, they're going to look at this version. And so if these versions coincide in the textual variant, decisions will be fine. And I agree that this is a good standard practice, especially when you're in a pinch or when you're on the fence and you can't really decide either way. You should probably go with the decision of the major translation that ex that's accepted in the area. But I have a few problems with that oversimplified approach. Number one, textual criticism is extremely valuable for everyone, including children. No matter who you teach it to, it's extremely valuable. Because it is an incredible apologetic. Being able to understand why different versions of the Bible in your language or in a language that you understand have vast differences in how they translate a verse like this one in 1 Samuel 10.1 bolsters your confidence in Scripture and gives you an answer to those who ask you whether inside the church or outside the church. And people will ask you. I guarantee it. And so when people come up to these translators who worked for years and years on this translation, someday down the road, and they ask them, why does your version say this, but the NIV or whatever other version says this? Well, the translator should have a solid answer and they should be able to patiently explain why. Because who else in their village or in their community is going to be able to explain that? Everyone is going to look to them as the experts on the biblical text. More than a pastor, probably. And if they can't give them an answer, who will give them an answer? Who will bolster their confidence in Scripture? Who will explain to them that people aren't playing fast and loose with the Word of God? The answer should not merely be, well, the consultant told us to do it. So if you're interested in helping with Bible translation, Get a thorough knowledge of textual criticism, both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. You can't just do one and expect that to carry over to the other. They're significantly different, so they each require their own special attention. Learn it to a point where you can teach it to others in other countries and make it understandable. Learn it to a point where you can teach it to children. And eventually, take what you've learned, put it into the language of wider communication of the people where you're working, and make it into a video course. Why didn't I say publish a book? Well, you can do that. I say a video course first because most of the cultures of the world are oral cultures. So to practice what I preach, I'm doing that right now in Spanish. You might be surprised to hear that after hundreds of years of the church being in Latin America and decades upon decades of translation work going on in Latin America, no one has ever written or translated a work on the textual criticism of the Old Testament in Spanish. Let that sink in for a moment. That means that I cannot simply just go buy some books and hand them to the translators that I serve. That would be super nice. Or I could turn that into some video lectures or whatever, but nothing exists. So you can pray for me because I want this to be exhaustive and thorough, as thorough as could be. So we're looking at over 100,000 words easily to cover everything that I want to cover and all the examples that I want to cover. 
All right, so let me step down from that soapbox and let's move on to another surprising thing that I learned while checking for Samuel. If we go to 1 Samuel 12, 9, we have this verse in the ESV. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. Now, it's going to be really hard to find a version that follows what the Septuagint inserts. So this is a very obscure issue, but the Septuagint inserts the name of the king of Hazor in their translation. And the Hebrew Old Testament text project does not even mention the problem. The RSV has a footnote that talks about this, that the Hebrew text does not include the name of the king, and this information is only found in the ancient Greek version. But in Spanish, one of the most popular versions, the Dios habla hoy version, which is kind of like the NLT of the Spanish-speaking world, for some reason decided to go with the Septuagint on this one. And they decided to add a footnote that says this is according to the Greek version. In the Hebrew text, this phrase does not appear. And I was proud of the translators that I serve because they ignored that version and they went with the Masoretic text, which is reflected in the Reina Valera 1960, the most widely read version here. Now, another place where you might be surprised that a simple verse ends up being a lot more complicated than you thought is 1 Samuel 12.15. Let me read this to you in several different versions and see if you can notice the difference. But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. That was the NIV, now the English Standard Version. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. NIV said, as it was against your ancestors, and ESV says, will be against you and your king. King James, the last part says, Then shall the hand of the Lord be against you, as it was against your fathers. And it was, is in italics. NASB, the last part says, Then the hand of the Lord will be against you, even as it was against your fathers. And as it was, is in italics, because that means it was not in the Hebrew text. So what does the Hebrew text actually say? Let's read that last part. V'hayata yad Yahweh bachem uva'avotechem. So literally, and the hand of Yahweh will be against you and against your fathers. The United Bible Society's translation guide says this. The Masoretic text says that the hand of the Lord will be against both the Israelites and against their ancestors. It is not immediately clear how God could punish their ancestors. Even so, CTAT, which we've talked about before, which is basically the French analysis and discussion of these textual variants for translators, it gives a B rating to the Masoretic text, which, by the way, means that they are fairly confident that this is the original text, and that's how it should be read. 
Then they go on to say the traditional Hebrew text may be explained in several ways. One, God's hand will be against the Israelites as it was against your fathers. So that's why the NIV and others do that kind of thing with it. They put the as it was. Number two, God would act against the memory of your ancestors or your race. Number three, God would act against the graves of your ancestors to defile them. See 2 Kings 23.16, Amos 2.1. The first of these possibilities seems the most likely and is in fact the understanding of the ancient Aramaic and Syriac versions. Then they say, S-E-M, which I'm assuming is some Bible version I'm not familiar with, seems to follow both the Masoretic text and the Septuagint. This is what they, they, they have there. The Eternal will punish you severely, as well as your king, as he severely punished your ancestors. Such a harmonizing solution to this textual problem is not recommended. Now, in Paratext, which I've done an episode on way long time ago, which is the premier Bible translation software that we use, in the Hebrew module, you can see sometimes little red superscript letters. And when you click them, they're hyperlinks that open up the Hebrew textual commentary, or the HOTTP, on a particular textual variant issue. And so here we have a little link. Their remark here is the following. Some old exegetical traditions interpret uva'avotechem, which is the last part of the verse that means and against your fathers. They interpret it as against your kings or your chiefs. Another tradition understands it as against the tombs of your fathers. Another traditional explanation is against the memory of your fathers, yet other traditions understand as the hand of the Lord was against your fathers. And they put as their suggestion simply to translate it as and against your fathers, presumably to leave it as ambiguous as the Hebrew leaves it so as to open the possibility for people to interpret it as any three of those options. So, what would you recommend to the translation team you're serving in this case? Well, first of all, this is not one of those key verses in the Bible. There's not a lot of theology hanging on this verse and its interpretation. And I think there's a reason that so many English translations have gone the route of the KJV and others and simply added a couple words to give an interpretive clarification so that it makes more sense and had, as it was, against your fathers. So, this is what the majority translations do in Spanish, and this is what the team that I'm working with ended up doing as well. And I was fine with that. Okay, so the last little snippet we're going to look at today is the famous 1 Samuel 13.1, which is really very bizarre when you think about it. Probably most people have never noticed what's going on here. Let me read from several English versions. NIV, Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. English Standard Version, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years 
over Israel, dot, dot, dot. King James, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, dot, dot, dot. New American Standard Bible, Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 42 years over Israel. (laughs) Holman Christian Standard Bible, Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. So what on earth is going on here? Well, I read to you just now the English Standard Version from the most recent update, right? I've still got my old Bible that I bought in 2001, version of the ESV, one of the earliest versions. And here's what it says. Saul was dot, dot, dot years old when he began to reign, and he reigned dot, 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 and two years over Israel. Now, they got two footnotes on this verse. The first one says, the number is lacking in Hebrew and Septuagint. Then the next footnote on the word two says, two may not be the entire number. Something may have dropped out. So what does the first part of this verse say in Hebrew? Ben Shana Shaul. So as those of you who know Hebrew might have noticed, Ben Shana is simply son of a year. And in Hebrew, typically to say somebody is so many years old, you say they were son of this many years. Now, the HOTTP gives this a rating of A. So, they're very confident that this is the original text. Something was not dropped out in this first part. They actually say in their suggestion, Saul was dot, dot, dot years old when he began to reign. And that's what the ESV has, in fact. Now, the HOTTP suggests for the last part of the verse He was king over Israel for two years. Well, most translations are not going to be able to go with that because they don't believe that Saul was only a king for two years. Now, the calculations on exactly how long he was king are all over the place. You have the NEB, which puts 22 years, and then you saw these other versions that put 42 years. But the Hebrew just has exactly what the ESV has. Ushete shanim. Except it doesn't have the ellipses. Ushete <laughs> shanim. And two years. Malach al Yisrael. He reigned over Israel. You may never have noticed it, but it's incredibly bizarre that even in audio Bibles of the ESV, so the early audio Bible done by Max McLean that I still listen to, to this day, he read this exactly how it is in the early ESV version. Listen to this. 1 Samuel 13. Saul was years old when he began to reign, and he reigned and two years over Israel. Here's what the UBS guide says. Obviously, there are two errors in the Hebrew text as we have it today. One, Saul was not one year old when he became king. And two, he reigned more than two years. Interpreters and translators have followed many solutions to this textual problem. Some translations follow the example of the Septuagint, which omits the entire verse. Yeah, that's right. If you go to your copy of the Septuagint, you'll find verse 1, 
and then a little blank spot, and then verse two, and it keeps going. (laughs) So yeah, that's what they went with. Then they go on saying, some translate the verse, but leave blank spaces as in the RSV, NRSV, and then we could add the ESV there. C, others leave only the first number blank. So like the TOB and others. D, some follow the first century Jewish historian Josephus and Acts 13.21 and claim that Saul ruled for about 40 years. You can compare the NIV, which says Saul was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned over Israel 42 years. The 30 years is based on a few late Septuagint manuscripts. Then you have another solution. REB follows the Greek manuscripts, which say that Saul began to reign when he was 30, and then conjectures that the number of years he ruled was 22. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel for 22 years. So that's their solution. Finally, NBE leaves the first number blank, stating in a note that the original lacks the number. But then NBE says that Saul reigned for 22 years. However, it has no note indicating that the number 22 is a guess. Now, unfortunately, Brian Simmons' translation of the Passion of 1 Samuel is not out yet. So we cannot see what he came up with. I'm looking forward to him telling a story about how an angel from heaven appeared to him and told him the real meaning of this verse. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, make sure you check the episode right before this one on the Passion Translation. So, going on with the commentary from UBS, the final solution above may seem the best at first glance, but a major problem with this is that early in his rule, Saul already has a grown son able to command troops. See verse 2. Therefore, Saul must have been older than 30 when he became king. So at the end of the day, they don't really give you a hard and fast solution to this. There's no pat answer here. But I do like the solution that one of the popular translations came up with here in Latin America. So they opted for this rendering. Saul was of legal age or an adult when he began to reign in Israel. And when he had already reigned for some years, comma, and then you get the next verse. So you see how they've inserted some ambiguity to help deal with the problem, but still give you something that's clear and natural and is accurate to the story as we understand it. So my recommendation to the translation team that I serve was the following, and this is what they went with. Saul was already grown up, or some equivalent in their language, an adult, when he began to be king of the Israelites. And when he was king for two years, or when he had been king for two years, then verse 2, then he chose 3,000 soldiers among the Israelites. 2,000 went with Saul to the town of dot, 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 etc. Okay, so that's the solution that we came up with. You may not think it's a perfect solution. That's okay. There probably is no perfect solution to this, but it's a good compromise. It's a good middle ground to help people navigate this verse. And I think it's a better one than what we have in the Reina Valera 1960, which says, Saul had reigned one year and 
when he had reigned two years over Israel, comma, dot, dot, dot. So that's kind of lame. Doesn't make a lot of sense to say Saul had reigned one year, semicolon, and when he had reigned two years, <laughs> dot, 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 you know. So I hope this has been interesting and helpful to give you a window into some of the nitty-gritty issues that we have to deal with in Bible translation that a lot of people don't think about. Now you know how to pray for Bible translation a little more. And this is often why it takes a lot more time than we usually expect to do a Bible translation. There are so many factors when you open the hood and look underneath and see what's going on and all of the little challenges that you have to face. We haven't even talked about linguistic challenges or just general vocabulary transfer challenges. These have all just been challenges of which text do I actually translate? And then I have to do the work of translating. But first I have to figure out what am I going to translate? And that's important. So thank you so much for joining us. Working for the Word is a podcast where we believe that the Bible is a unified, God-breathed, God-centered, hope-giving book, sweeter than honey and pointing to Jesus. This podcast exists ultimately to help us all treasure the Bible, go deeper into it, and ultimately become like the man of Psalm 1.